HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Rosarian Danielle Del Army Hahn. In this episode, we'll talk to Danielle about The Julia Child Rose, her new book, the Color of Roses, and we'll hear Danielle's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Maybe it was destiny that there would be a rose named in honor of Julia. After all, she was born in the City of Roses, Pasadena, California, in 1912. She died in Santa Barbara in 2004, just as a rose bred and named in her honor bloomed. Butter yellow, of course, smelling faintly of licorice, although some swear it smells like butter. Julia gave her rare blessing to name the rose after her and personally selected the type. Credit for this rare exception to lend a commercial product her name goes to her relationship with Santa Barbara County's leading rose growers. Danielle Dahl Army Hahn knows her Julia Child roses from Barbara Streisand's and Neil Diamond's. Danielle is the co-owner and co-founder with her husband, Bill Hahn, of Rose Starry Farm in California's Carpinteria Valley. Begun in 1998 on her family's 15-acre lemon and avocado farm, Rose Story Farm produces high-quality roses in all shapes and colors for sale to the trade. The farm has blossomed, couldn't resist that one, from its first 1,000 rose bushes to 40,000, including 130 different varieties. Having both grown up in garden-loving families with grandmothers who grew roses, Danielle and Bill operate Rose Story Farm as a family business 
dedicated to growing roses and teaching others to cultivate their own. Danielle frequently writes and speaks about roses and was named a great Rosarian of the world in 2014, joining an elite group of just 15 others. The award is co-sponsored by the Huntington Library and New York Metropolitan Rose Council. It honors men and women who've made significant contributions to the cultivation and appreciation of roses. Sounds a bit like the Julia Child Award for Rose Growers. She joins us today to share her passion and tell us about her new book, The Color of Roses, A Curated Spectrum of 300 Blooms. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about roses. It's a little bit of a departure from our usual uh, foodie subjects. Let's start with, because I gave a brief description of how you started Rose Story Farm, but I know there's more to the story. How how did you end up deciding to basically be a a rose farmer? Well, we, this property became available and um, it it was very old, over a hundred years old. Um, It had lots of old buildings and lots of old trees. And we my husband had grown up on a farm in Washington state and he had wanted to get his hands back into the dirt uh, in some fashion, uh, but he has a full-time job. So it was a, incumbent upon me to come up with something to grow that we could, you know, potentially um, be, have some profit with. Um, so he of course wanted to grow some food item, tomatoes or herbs or something that we could um, eat. And I uh, was looking at it from, a, from another perspective, which was, look, we have all these beautiful old buildings out here. How could we beautify the buildings and what better way to do that than with flowers? So I wanted to do something with flowers. And we had, it was the one thing that we had in common um, was our, our love for roses. Whenever we bought a property, we were, in the market for um, roses and we would go to the nursery and pick out roses for our property and plant them. And this particular property, um, it's in a canyon and it has centuries and centuries of topsoil that has washed down the canyon. So there, we found that there was literally 18 feet of topsoil. You could literally put anything in the ground and it would grow. And the roses were no exception. They just grew like crazy. So that's kind of how it happened. We started uh, with the idea that we would do this commercially and uh, made every mistake in the book. Um, but gradually, every time we got, you know, had a new bloom, somebody would say, oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. So we knew we were on to something and, um, and it kind of just evolved from this avocation to... Um, a job. So I was interested to know more about the kind of location, because to me, of all the things to grow, roses are pretty, I don't know if they're easy to start, but they're pretty hardy. Like once they get established, you almost can't kill them. But is there something unique about the the climate or stuff that it either extends your growing season or what it, what is, I know you've mentioned that Carpentry Valley is really an ideal location for growing roses. Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, we did not have to, um, the infrastructure for uh, flowers was already here in the valley. Um, So in terms of, you know, shipping and um, um, uh, wholesale operations, um, 
we that was already here. So that was the one thing that was great about the valley, in addition to the fact that it is the most incredible soil ever. And you're right, roses will grow under just just about any circumstances. But we have very mild um, weather here, and we can extend our season. I mean, we literally have roses from March through December. We could probably grow them all year round, although that's not good for the plants. Um, but we literally could grow them all year round. Uh, we have a few days of, of frost, and we have a few days of heat. But other than that, it's just the temperatures are, are moderate and perfect for growing roses. Um, they're also on the California drought resistant list. So they don't need a lot of water. Uh, if you want them to grow, you know, prolifically and bloom constantly, water is lovely to have, but typically, um, roses do not need a lot of water to survive. So that was another reason to pick the flower, um, for our valley. Makes sense. So it's kind of a unique combination. I guess the roses are very versatile in that way. So, so they can kind of adjust to a climate, but the, there are ideal conditions that make them proliferate more. Correct. Yes. Yes. So um, food and water, fertilizer, fertilizer and water um, are, are essential to having great roses. But, you know, roses are also, I mean, you can find them in, you know, in desertous, you know, desert conditions where they don't get any water at all um, and they still survive. So they're really remarkable and they've been around since, you know, the dinosaurs time. So for years and centuries and centuries. And do you think that's why they're so robust? Because they're old and they've just sort of adapted to their, they, they have more history of adaptation? You know, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, I would assume so. Um, I would assume so. And so on the farm, do you still grow avocado and lemon trees as well? Or have you kind of just, because the roses have taken off, that that's kind of what you do? Well, because we're in this little canyon, um, we have, we're surrounded by this sort of hillside and we've kept the we've kept our avocados on the hills surrounding the roses um we've replaced the older varieties with a new um variety that is uh resistant to some of the diseases that avocados can get and so um we do have about 2000 avocado trees as well as the roses um we have a few lemons left um the rose i mean the farm was a lemon farm at one point um, but the lemons are interesting. You need um, 10 acres plus of, of lemons to be able to, to um, sell them commercially. So that was a tougher, um, that was a tougher market for us. Um, avocados, um, as long as, you know, there's a, there are a variety of ways to market avocados. And we have been very fortunate um, in that area. And again, uh, Carpentria Valley has the infrastructure for avocados, um, both shipping and um, picking. So that's been great. And when you have a rose farm, do you need like do you need to cultivate something else to get them? Like, is it cross pollinate nation or anything sort of 
that you need that's symbiotic with roses or or that's not as big a consideration? The only the only consideration is what do you do in the three months that you don't have roses? How do you keep your staff occupied and and you know how do you pay for them? Um, so that's the only relationship and and having that check come in for the avocados once or twice a year uh, certainly helps um, keep everything going. Uh, roses are tough. It's um, it's a very, very expensive to grow them and um, to keep them healthy. Uh, I've tried to um, emphasize that they don't need to be perfect um, and you can still enjoy them that with a bug bite or a, a, you know, a little bit of, of damage on the petals that they're still beautiful because they, they, they're, they just look, you know, they're still, they still smell good and they still, for the most part, look natural and, and beautiful. But uh, we have, you know, it's a, it's a high-end product that is uh, used for um, weddings and fancy events. And sometimes the recipients of the roses are less uh, patient with the product than we are. So to put it sort of... <laughs> Yeah, no, maybe that's a good good idea uh, or a good moment to talk about kind of the difference between what you do and like grocery store roses. Because I'm assuming <laughs> right. most of what you sell are not still like tightly like un like you sell fully bloomed roses most of the time. I assume. Well, they they will. The difference between grocery store roses and the roses we grow, it's grocery store roses are grown indoors, and the climate uh, can be completely controlled. Um, so, you know, they also, in addition to that, they have very little fragrance. So the fragrance pores in roses, um, are in the petals and the thinner the petal, the more fragrant the rose is because the more fragrance pores the rose has. So when you are in the grocery store and you feel the petals and they, they're very leathery and thick, and that's because they have very few fragrance pores and the longer you know, they last longer in the vase. So the thicker the petal, the longer the vase life. So our our um, goal has always been to try to have long vase life, but fragrance. And so there's a happy medium there. You have, I mean, it's very difficult to have a fragrant rose last, you know, say more than seven days. And that's been a challenge. And that has to do with the delicacy of the petals, like the, yes. the more delicate, the more fragrance, but as a result, they, they drop sooner. They drop sooner. And so my idea has been, well, look, if, you know, you have to just enjoy them for the moment that you have them, similar to a bottle of wine or a, a wonderful dinner, um, you know, we have this idea that flowers are supposed to last, you know, two weeks or uh, that's you know, but my point has always been, gosh, can't you just enjoy them for a moment and then enjoy their whole, you know, enjoy them as they drop their petals and look at, I mean, even when a rose has no petals at all, it's still quite beautiful. So the idea is to sort of change people's thinking um, because the most fragrant of all flowers are also the most delicate. You know, if you think of an iris or a, a gardenia or um, some of the frag some of the flowers that have the absolute most incredible fragrance are you know last a minute in the vase. Um, but we need to change uh, our thinking. I mean, the idea that you can you know 
are you going to have a, a bottle of wine last two weeks or three weeks, maybe? Um, but so. No, I mean, I think we talk about that a lot with that American commercial grocery store culture really changed people's expectations about things lasting forever and being available all the time. And I think we're going through a re-indoctrination process that maybe there are limits to those expectations. And and obviously, that we, we're all learning there are negative consequences of those. But it is kind of a giant reset to deal with things being more transitory and sometimes not available. But when they are, it makes them more special and maybe better appreciated. Right. Well, I feel like I've, I've been on a 25-year campaign to have people rethink uh, the idea of a flower and how long it should last or how, you know, uh, because it, it, nobody, I mean, some of the um, flower and I, I'm probably, I don't like to (laughs) cast any uh, whatever, but um, the idea that a flower has to last 10 days to two weeks is just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And yes, you can have flowers that last that long, but you lose much of, of for instance, you lose the fragrance and you lose the tactile, some of the tactile stuff um, is gone. So my idea for the last 25 years is to have people enjoy every aspect of the flower, every aspect of the rose, the, from the bud to, you know, when they, when they set their hips and they're also beautiful in that last um, stage before winter. Um, so there's lots of different ways and, and, you know, they can be, um, enjoyed in so many ways. Petals on the table are beautiful. Um, well, no, I, I think your advocacy is is terrific. And, and like, like I said, we spend a lot of time trying to talk about resetting people's expectations of, I, every time I go into the grocery store in winter with strawberries on display in the front, I want to start yelling because I was like, you could eat those now, but you really shouldn't because everything you're talking about, you're not maximizing the strawberries height of taste or potential or or how it's grown in a more natural fashion, because if it was, it wouldn't be here. So I, right. we, we appreciate that. Oh, I don't want to run out of time to let, let's talk about Julia and the Julia Child Rose. So was Rose Story Farm involved in the development of the Julia Child Rose? So my father and Julia had a very special relationship, my father and mother. Um, uh, they used to um, go to the farmer's markets together and uh, she was a fixture at our dinner table for um, Sunday night uh, dinners and then holidays. She was you know, always at Thanksgiving or Christmas and so on and so forth. So they had a very special relationship. And he, uh, dad worked on Julia for, for many years about having, maybe having a rose named after her. She did love the farm. She absolutely loved the farm. She loved coming out here. Um, and she and Paul would come out here and they would walk around and then Eventually, Paul passed, and she would continue to come out. Um, uh, she would walk, and then she would take the golf cart, and then she would, you know, had she had her walker, and then eventually she would just drive around. But she, this was always the first stop for her house guests to come out to the farm and look at the roses. So it was sort of um, 
we really felt, dad felt that she should have a rose and that it would not be commercial. You know, she would not, as you know, loan her name to any type of, of commercial enterprise that because she wanted to benefit the whole and not just one person, even with a scholarship. Um, she was very picky about that. So the idea that, um, that the rose, um, that she would have her name on a rose um, was a little bit controversial for her to begin with. And he kept emphasizing that the price of the rose was, you know, going to be something that everyone could afford and that this would be a wonderful way for her to, um, you know, just to have a rose named after her. And so he kept it up and kept it up. And at some point, I mean, she just arrived at the farm with her um, niece and her attorney and said, I'm here to pick my rose. Um, she didn't call, she didn't call ahead. She just sort of arrived. And I thought, hmm, well, that's interesting. So we had a, a test garden where we have roses that had not been named yet. And so I went to the test garden and I knew she was going to want the yellow rose. I just knew because she always wanted yellow roses. Um, she liked the yellow the best. And so I picked one of the yellow and a red and a purple. And she said, I'll have the yellow. And I said, well, you'll probably have to have a backup choice because this one may already be spoken for. And she said, nope, I want the yellow. So I called um, the hybridizer, who's Tom Carruth. And I said, Tom, Julia's here and she wants to pick her rose and she'd like the yellow one. And he said, gosh, um, that one's already spoken for. Um, you'll have to have a backup. And I said, she doesn't want a backup. She wants the yellow one. And so as I hung up the phone, the second line was ringing and it was Tom and he said, I'll make it work. And so, <laughs> um, well, the yellow one had already, unbeknownst to us, won several awards. It was an ARS winner. It was, um, which meant that it was, you know, a fantastic rose. And the roses that have that designation um, are typically not named after people because they want them to be sort of more generic. Um, the only two roses that in the past are Mr. Lincoln and Queen Elizabeth. So she joins the ranks of two other people in these ARS winners um, to have a name, a rose named after her. Uh, but it is, it was an heiress winner and it has proven to be one of the most spectacular roses that Tom, ev you know, ever, ever developed. Um, so anyway, she picked it and it was named after her. And I have the first 200 of them here planted in a garden that has a bench from her garden. Um, it was, a, it's a little teak bench that she had, very humble um, and it sits in the middle of these 200 plants, which sadly, she never got to see in fruition. She never was able to see her rose um, in, in, in production. Um, but anyway, it's there. The, her bench is in the garden, and it's our little tribute to Julia. Um, so no, that yeah. that's amazing. I've never heard I've never heard the story from start to finish. So oh. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing that. And I, one thing that I'm really fascinated about that gets confusing is it. I'm sure it's not confusing to you because you live this way and this is your. But there's right there's a difference between a grower and a breeder. And it sounds like 
the breeder quote unquote invented or hybridized the certain rows, but you they work hand in hand with you because a breeder needs a grower to to test the the ability for the roses to bloom and, and prosper. Is that yes, it it's a it's about a 10 year process. So you start with seed pairings and um you start with you know thousands of these seed pairings and then over a 10 years they you sort of get to the point where you have um, some trial plants and then those trial plants are sent out to certain growers to sort of test them and see what people like. And um, for many years, we were one of the test gardens for these roses. Um, and then you're right, after um, after that certain period, and they're named and then they are, um, and then they're marketed or put into um, into production. Um, and then the growers, I'm, I'm not considered a grower. I'm, I mean, we do cut flowers, so it's a very different, um, uh, there's, the growers are the people that take the, the roses from these hybridizers and then actually grow them out for them. And then I would then purchase the rose plant from these growers, put them in the ground, and then we cut from them. So if that, if that makes, if it simplifies it at all. Well, it adds another layer. So you're saying you're neither a grower or a breeder. Do you call your, but you're more than a cutter because you're 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 still raising or you're still you still have plants that you harvest. Right, right. No, we do have we have plants, and um, but but what we ask from our plants is very different than say a grower would ask from his plants. I mean, we I'm not particularly interested in the in the shape or um, the shape or the the leaf formations of the plant. I'm really interested in the bloom. Um, so, and a grower would have to, you know, he's selling plants. So he's going to be more interested in the shape of the plant and the, you know, the health of the plant and that sort of thing. For instance, we grow many roses that I would not put in someone else's garden because they're, they're disease prone or not as easy to grow as I would like them to be. And we do do a lot of garden design for people. So the roses that we grow for cut flowers can sometimes be very different than the roses I would recommend people putting in their gardens. I get it. Actually, I was on a sheep farm and I couldn't understand. This is in the north of England. And the farmer's main business is sort of like a version of yours. He mm-hmm. breeds the sheep and sells them on. But and he, he he would be more like the grower, like he's starting them, but then he moves them on to other people who would either use the wool or the meat. But he he's at that stage. And that's like what he's trying to do is he he's breeding healthy, good looking sheep to move on to someone who who would be in the next stage like you are to either, you know, make them into meat or make them into use their wool. Right. Right. That, yeah. So that's yeah. <laughs> Very, very much the same. So um, if you wanted, if I, for instance, when we we design gardens for people, I want to find out what color they like. That's my first, uh, my first question is typically what color are you drawn to or color palette are you drawn to? And then within that color palette, I'm going to look for the roses that are the most disease resistant, the people that, so that they have instant success with their gardens. Um, and that's very different than, say, for instance, um, you know, what I'm looking for in a cut flower. Um, and, you know, some people want that as well. They want cut flowers as well. But 
But, you know, 25 years of doing this now, I, I know that some of these roses are very challenging to, um, to grow. So we, we steer people away from those, which is. Well, that's a perfect segue. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from Rosarian Danielle Delarme Hahn. Stay with us. This episode is supported by HRN business member Crew, a sophisticated Thai restaurant serving historic dishes inspired by Thailand's royalty and aristocracy in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Crew recreates and reimagines historic dishes from ancient recipes that are marked by their surprising openness to worldly ingredients. Visit krubrookly.com to learn more and make a reservation. Crew supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back. We're talking to Danielle Delarme Hahn from Rose Story Farm about her new book, The Color of Roses. So I think before the break, we were just getting to the point of, you know, the advice you give people uh, when you're as part of your business, you help people plant their own rose gardens. And so let's talk about the book. And and did you write the book for people wanting to plant gardens? Is it for people who are just starting out? Or is it really for people who are like super into roses and already know the basics? All of the above, all of the above. I wanted it to be, um, I wanted to appeal to you know, rose growers, uh, rose arrangers, and, you know, rose dreamers, people that just want to look at beautiful pictures and maybe someday have a rose in their garden or on their patio. Um, So the idea was to just um, think about roses as sort of a rainbow of color. And um, because I think for the most part, color is what draws us to a flower to begin with, uh, and then perhaps fragrance. And, you know, after that, disease resistance and, you know, plant health and that sort of thing. But but really, um, the color and the shape and then the fragrance are the three things that, that tend to um, uh, appeal to people first. Um, when you go into the grocery store, back to the grocery store roses, and you stick your nose into a bouquet of roses and there's no fragrance it's really frustrating um it's almost the first thing anybody does is try to smell a rose and um after of course they look at the color but um but anyway so my idea was to to put together a book of of roses in a compendium a a compendium of 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 roses in in a rainbow of colors. And I don't think it's ever been done quite that way before. So in other words, when you, the idea would be that you take the book, which is actually a nice size because you can carry it with you to a nursery um, or into the flower market. And you'd flip through and say, oh gosh, this yellow, I love this, this, this shade of yellow. And then within that shade of yellow, you might have a choice of 10 or 12 roses that you could pick um, and you could say to your grower or to your um, flower market person I would like to have you know one of these and they could help you out so 
the most frustrating thing we've found is with people asking for roses that are no longer in production, um, they just don't have any, um, there's none left. Um, and so the idea that you could pick something that was very similar was, was hopefully a good thing. Um, if that makes sense. So, yeah, and that's what one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I noticed that because you have the roses, you know, in in this color, lovely color spectrum, the photographs are beautiful. It's just a lovely book to just look at. And then you have them by name and the date when they were bred. Um, it, But I noticed how recent most of them are, like almost all of them are in the last 50 years with a few exceptions. So I was yes. curious about the criteria and about, about the significance of that. I, I didn't expect so many to be so recent. Well, I feel like my expertise is in modern roses and the modern roses. I wanted to, a, a modern rose is any rose that was developed after 1867. That was kind of the, the, um, the date that people talk about roses prior to that or older roses, old roses um, since then are considered modern roses and roses that are developed in the last 10 to 15 years tend to be more disease resistant. So for a new gardener, um, I always ask them to select a rose that has been hybridized or developed in the last 10 to 15 years because they'll have more success and they're able to grow it with, you know, fewer um, uh, chemicals, for instance, or organic. We, we're all hoping that, um, you know, in, in, in Europe, for instance, um, for, for years and years and years, they've had very strict uh, regulations about what kind of chemicals you can use in the garden for, you know, food and flowers. Not so much here. So we, I think for people to be successful with roses, they want to have disease resistance and to do that and to do that organically. So that was my first uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, goal criteria. is criteria. Thank you. Was to have um, roses that people would be successful with. Um, so the only older roses that I've chosen are sort of really, really tried and true that uh, almost bulletproof, for instance. Um, mm. But other than that, they're all modern roses. And, and also, as I said, so if, uh, if a person wasn't able to find a yellow rose in the color you know the shade that they wanted they could look at that same um, color palette and pick out another one and most likely find that one and are all now i think i said and maybe this number of ebbs and flows a little bit but you cultivate 130 different varieties but there's 300 in the book so are all the ones you cultivate in the book and then the book is additive well, yes, we, um, I did use, we have about 160 or so, 160, 180 that we grow on the farm. And those uh, are all in the book. Everything that we grow on the farm is in the book. And then um, our friends at Otto and Sons Nursery, um, which is right over the hill from us, uh, they have I think 600 varieties. And so we wow. together, I know, I picked out the remaining 120 with them. Um, again, trying to make sure that there are roses that are commonly available for people and, and easy to grow. 
So um, the last 120 or so that we picked, uh, uh, we picked it uh, in their garden. Uh, they have a remarkable, remarkable nursery. It's just incredible. Um, and it was, it's been very challenging. I mean, at the end of the book, I mean, the very beginning of the book, I could pick, you know, 30 or 40 roses and we'd have them sitting there and they were, you know, we'd have a, we had a system of photographing them. And, uh, but at the end, you know, I would drive down to auto autos and, um, at five o'clock in the morning and pick one, maybe one rose and then drive it to my photographer. So it, at the very end, trying to get the last, you know, 10 roses from out of the 300, it was, it was really difficult because I wanted, I had this list of roses that I wanted and I had to make sure that I could find one that was perfect, that could be photographed that moment um, and then added to the book. So it was really a challenge. Um, well, it was very successful because it's a very compelling book and it's very beautiful, but you also, I, I've definitely learned a lot more about roses than I, than I ever knew. I, I wanted to go back to what you talked about because like once you say it, it makes perfect sense, but it didn't occur to me that, you know, you need modern or recent roses because like any plant, they have to evolve over time to survive and resist diseases or environmental changes. But I was curious, you mentioned a couple of these uh, when we were talking about the type of rose that has Julia Child's name. Are, are there still some roses that you can get that are actually ancient varieties and eternal or because of evolution, most roses are going to be a modern adapted hybrid? No, there, um, old roses are still very much available. Um, there are nurseries that specialize in the old roses. And um, they're not, it's interesting because there will be slight variations in the plants. I mean, your Cecile Bruner might be a little bit different than mine, but for the most part, it's going to have the same fragrance and same growth habits. Um, and to the naked eye, um, it would be very difficult um for you to say your plant was different than mine. But I think somebody might say, oh gosh, your, yours might be an, um, an, yours might have had a few more um, uh, changes over the 100 or 200 years that it's been in existence. Uh, be very difficult uh, for, for anyone, for a, the, for a norm, I mean, a, an average rose, rose person to know those differences, but I think somebody could if that that makes sense but yes you can still get old roses and they should still be the same um, plant material and with the because it seems like you know when you look at your book and you see how many are, are relatively recent that that you included is there also an evolution though that are there like let's say now a hundredfold varieties of roses than there used to be but or as much as new hybrids are produced, old hybrids cease to survive? So at any one given time, there are about 3,000 roses in commerce. Um, there's, um, and it, within those 3,000, um, th that changes from year to year. For instance, I mean, we had a rose called Papa Mayan, um, and it was, it it was, it's a beautiful old rose and it had absolutely the most incredible fragrance, but the hybridizer 
um, the Mian family um, actually visited the farm. And I said, he said, oh, gosh, it's so sad that Rose was so beautiful. And now it, it has no fragrance. And I said, oh, gosh, ours have fragrance. And he said, oh, no, he, you must have the original rootstock. So he raced over to this plant and, and it was um, it was the original rootstock of Papa Mayan. He said, well, we bred that. We had to, we had, see how the neck is slightly bent um, on that rose. He said, we tried to straighten out the neck and to straighten out the neck, we got, sadly, the fragrance went um, um, bye-bye. <laughs> so, so you got this nice, strong stem from the same color as the original rose, but without the fragrance because he could, you can't have both. Um, I don't know why I started down that path with that story. But, but anyway, so then he took cuttings of my rose, of my Papa Mayan rose, and bred it back into the rose that had the straighter stem. And now we have both. So, you know, the next iteration of that rose has a strong neck and fragrance. Um, so wow. there's an example of a rose that went out of fashion came back in fashion and now is is still you know very popular wow and and speaks to the power of your farm that's great oh, i know yeah. that that was fascinating all right after fun. the break we'll hear danielle's julia moment tickets are now on sale for the 2023 taste of santa barbara may 15th to 21 check out the full schedule and get your tickets on sbce.events the lineup features some of Santa Barbara County's top culinary talent, and highlights include a special screening of classic Julia episodes and a conversation with Chef Susan Feniger, Antonia Lafazzo, and Nancy Silverton, a Cherry Bomb meetup at Maddie's Tavern, and the Taste of Santa Barbara wines at El Presidio, as well as cooking classes, farm tours, wine tours, and special menus throughout the county. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for breaking news and updates. Proceeds from the Taste of Santa Barbara benefit the local community. We hope to see you there. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't, have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Danielle, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> it was. It's really hard to pick just one. Oh, people cheat all the time and give us more than one, so that's definitely allowable. It was, um, she was so inspirational um, and such a mentor for me. Um, I just never could imagine that something I loved so much could actually be a business. Um, and I think she would just come out, she would come to the farm and she said, oh dearie, just do what you love. Just keep doing it. And it'll, it'll, I mean, she was, just keep doing it. And at that little that little um, segment that you just had where she was just like, nobody sees you, just keep doing it. Um, and um, things will, it'll, it'll happen. And I think it did happen. Um, 
you know, it, it did happen. He, she would uh, come out and just say, what you're doing is so wonderful. And it's, you know, people will love it. And I love it. And, you know, she did love it. And the idea that she, if she loved it, then maybe other people would love it. And so I guess that's my, there, there were so many moments where she just kept saying, you've got to just keep doing what you love. And, uh, and I do, I do. It's, it's, I do what I love. And um, 25 years later, it feels like it was yesterday that we started. And um, yeah, we love it. We just love it. No, that's great. I, I feel listeners getting very jealous that the inspiration that people take from afar from Julia as their kind of personal cheerleader, that that you you had her literally there <laughs> egging you on and telling you to keep going. That that That's a real gift. Yeah, no, she just, um, you know, she really did. And, and it was, it was everything she, everything she did, everything she stands for, everything, uh, you know, she just, there's just never any, uh, it was always, what you see is what you got. And um, it, it wasn't always what you wanted to hear, but you always got the truth from her. And, um, and you know, it's sort of this, powerful message to just do what you do what you feel you have to do well we really that that that's well put and you you luckily have your your own julia child rose garden <laughs> that you any moment you need a julia pick me up i assume you can just go go stand <laughs> yes yeah and um and i know the wider julia family particularly around santa barbara delights in having their own uh buttery yellow julia child roses growing yeah, well, the idea was that, you know, she could be in anybody's garden and she could be an inspiration for anyone uh, by just, you know, being in her, in your, in your garden. Um, so it, she is, you know, she did want to be, she wants to be, uh, she did want to be something for everyone, I believe, so... Well, and now hopefully eternal. So thank yes. you, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to hear more from Danielle, you can check out rosestoryfarm.com or she's at rosestoryfarm on Instagram. There are very lovely photos there, which will pick you up on any gray day. The new book is The Color of Roses, A Curated Spectrum of 300 Blooms by Danielle Delarmy Hahn with photographs by Victoria Pearson. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Video clips from The French Chef are still arriving weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child channels streaming The French Chef and other Julia shows on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freebie, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon Prime. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH, thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn, by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.